Hello, I'm Simon Newton and welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. More than two months into Ukraine's counteroffensive, it's pushed back front lines only a matter of a few miles. But Kyiv is still holding back significant military capability. Mike and I will assess why it's not throwing everything it has into the fight back and how long it has to show progress. As long as this war continues, the worse are consequences for everybody. Food security, prices in the world, into the refugee crisis and everything else is just worsening from day to day. Catalogues of complaints ranging from accommodation to sexual harassment are not getting fair, effective or efficient handling, according to the Forces Complaints Ombudsman. We'll hear from Germany's Armed Forces Commissioner about whether their model could make a difference. So I do field visits and I don't have to announce them. So I can look wherever I want to, I can talk to whom I, I want to. And can words prevent warfare? We explore the concept of weaponized narratives. The better you do it, the more you can mobilize, the more you can polarize, the more you can achieve the objectives of warfare, which is about changing your opponent's will without actually using kinetic force or violence. Sitrep with Simon Newton and Professor Michael Clark. So, Mike, this week I want to dig a bit deeper into something you said last week, and not for the first time, that Ukraine still hasn't committed everything it has to this counteroffensive. They've still got to launch the greater part of their forces, I think you said, and yet they're still getting pessimistic about progress. Yes, a lot of people are sceptical because they're getting very impatient. And the way I always compare it is it's a bit like the Duke of Wellington taking fortresses in the Peninsular War, even medieval warfare, the Russians have created a fortress, uh, you know, 750 miles long, over a thousand kilometres. And rather like the Duke of Wellington would, you batter away at the fortress until you've made some breaches. And then the great question is, are the breaches practicable? Can you get through one or more of them with an assault? And that's what the Ukrainians have been facing recently. They've made three or four breaches in the walls. Are they practicable? And they've got to take that decision very soon now. And I think they already have, to be honest. I think the second phase of the offensive began actually a week last Wednesday. And a number of other sources think so too. But even then, they're building up their forces. They're not committing everything all in one place because they may still be trying to assess which of the breaches offer them the, offers them the best possibility. So we've, I think all of the Ukrainian spearhead forces are now on the move only about between a third and a half of them are currently fighting. And I think the rest will come into the picture, I think, very, very soon. So I, I, like yourself, I spend uh, my days reporting for Forces News and I'm, I'm solely committed to, to looking at Ukraine. And from what I see, and correct me if I'm wrong, they have about 12 or so brigades or had about 12 brigades set up for this counteroffensive. They've maybe committed, like you say, maybe four or five of them so far. Yeah. So there are yeah. there is quite a lot of depth there. And in terms of where this fighting's happening, we've got these three sort of localized counter counteroffensive. One going south of Orakiv, heading towards Tokmak, which we know is this Russian HQ, which I've I looked this morning, they've ringed that now with deep defensive lines. We've got the other fighting going on around Veliko Novosilko, which is north of Mariupol, and which would seem this obvious route to try and cut this Russian land bridge. And then we've got this fighting which we've now seen for months and months in Bakhmut, where these Wagner fighters have been replaced by these VDB paratroopers, much more elite troops, and the Ukrainians are pinning them down to stop them being engaged elsewhere. So the, the, the gains are really incremental at the moment. But what's yeah. your assessment of, of how things are actually going? 
Yeah, I mean, those three areas are, are clearly the ones that we're all looking at. And the first one you mentioned there, south of Orikiv, towards Tokmak, is the, looks like the, that's the most strategically important. It's also the toughest. And so it may be not the one that they will go for with all of their forces. They've also opened up another front, um, which is uh, crossing the uh, Dnieper River. Kherson. They crossed at the, near the Antonovsky Bridge uh, a few weeks ago, and they've crossed again yesterday at uh, Kazachi Lahiri, further up, about 15 kilometers further north. And there was something going on at Novokokovka, around the Novokokovka Dam area yesterday. Mm. And the, now, whether they can do anything with that, we don't know, because, you know, you know better than me, it's it's very difficult country to operate in. But they're clearly trying to stretch the Russian forces. And then there's another front, which works the other way around. The Russians further north are trying to put together enough forces to threaten Kupiansk to actually outflank the uh, the Ukrainians by getting back some of the territory they lost last autumn in the Kharkiv region. And so while the Ukrainians are trying to stretch the Russians down to the southwest, the Russians are trying to stretch the Ukrainians up in the northeast. And what I think we're, we're seeing now is that the whole of the battlefront is in play all of the time. The entire mm. 750 miles is now in play for the coming weeks. So in, in terms of depth of reserves and what they can bring bring to bear, we've some assessments say Ukraine's got had, had about 120,000 killed or wounded, Russia possibly as many as 200,000. So the attrition is really high here. Um, yes. The US, I understand, is sending 31 Abrams. So there's more, there's more equipment coming, but that's not actually that much. And we heard Putin ordering more T-90 tanks this week, things ramping up in terms of military production in Russia. So how, how do you weigh this up as to what they can both bring to bear over the, as you say, this sort of second act, the second counteroffensive? Yeah, and this is where timing is important. In the immediate few weeks, the Ukrainians have got more reserves to offer. I mean, they've got them ready and they'll go and they can outnumber the, the Russians in detail in wherever they start to try to make their big breakthroughs. And so they, they can be reasonably confident about that. But that advantage will unravel itself as the Russians play for time, the Russians want to get to the winter without losing any territory at all, if possible. And then their next big uh, rolling uh, reinforcement will start as they bring more old stuff uh, to bear. They've, they've emptied their Buryatia armoured plant, old uh, T-62 main battle tanks and um, old BMP-1s and BMP-2s, the armoured fighting vehicles. They've taken about 40% of that. They were rusting away in Buryatia, but they brought them forward. So they'll produce a lot more old armour on the battlefield. And there may well be uh, another round of partial mobilisation in Russia, which would be very unpopular, of course. But it may be that Putin feels he has no alternative but to bite the bullet on that one. So the Russians are playing for the winter when they then feel that they can begin to, as it were, move forward again and outnumber the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians have got to make what they can out of the next three or four months when they will have some local superiority with their better equipment and forces that are so far uncommitted. Do you think there's a slight change in in feeling towards this counteroffensive now? I mean, it was very optimistic at the very start. There's some pessimism creeping in. We've seen, I mean, the depth of defences that Russians have built is quite incredible. And, and these minefields are proving so difficult to get through. They have. I mean, the, the, the Russians have laid triple the number of mines that most military manuals tell you you need to cover a, a, a kilometre of ground. They've tripled the number. And there are, there are reports of four and five mines in one square yard of ground. Nobody's ever seen mining at this level before. Now, of course, you know, forces can always get through that, but it slows you down and makes you vulnerable while you're doing it. And that's the problem that the Ukrainians have got. The point about the 
time it takes is that the Ukrainians now don't have that much time left. They've used a lot of the time that would have been available and they have do have more stuff arriving. And I think one of the reasons that they've been even more cautious is they're waiting for more material coming in as it were, mm. by the back door from the West because the West has been slow to realise just how difficult this would have been. Just to, just to mention this attack on this optics factory uh, outside Moscow, that was also very interesting. It's, it's, I guess it's a tactic to sort of disrupt the supply chain rather than actually taking out tanks. You can actually just remove their night sights and, and you know, disable them that way in a sense. Yeah, at uh, Zarkov, just northeast of, of Moscow. I mean, it's still not clear what the uh, you know what the cause of the explosion was, but I was looking at it a fair bit yesterday. It's a huge explosion, and it, it, I mean, usually you get huge explosions with ammunition, but there was no secondary explosions evident as far as you could see. So whatever happened was a massive explosion, and whether it was an industrial accident of some huge proportions or it was an act of sabotage, I don't know. Mm. But clearly, if you'd said to anyone in Kiev, you know, what would be your top three or four targets around the Moscow area mm -hmm. that would do you some good. This would have been one of them because optics, night night fighting optics, and particularly optics for tanks for um, the uh, the targeting system and the ability of tanks to operate at night is pretty critical. And one of the things, one of the problems the Russians have had in bringing more tanks onto the front line is exactly the lack of optics. And they thought they'd solved that problem this month. And this uh, accident or explosion, whatever it was, um, will certainly put that back a little bit. I mean... Putin, his tactic is effectively just to grind this out, it seems. And, and you know, if you just look, look at the sheer maths, you know, Russia has a population that I think is triple the size of, of Ukraine. So if they need yeah, to mobilize more troops. Yeah, yeah 44 it, million in Ukraine, 144 in Russia. Right. So, I mean, so over time, that tactic could succeed. It could. I mean, in, in his, his strategy now, as far as you can tell, I mean, you know, Putin's strategy has never been clear from the very beginning, apart from the strategy of, of taking Ukraine in three days. I mean, that was a clear strategy, which was ridiculous. And when that failed, he's just kind of being drawn along by this war. And as far as he has a coherent strategy now, it is not to lose, not obviously to lose and to see what the next year brings. In theory, Russia could keep this going for you know many, many years and is trying to prepare the population for the idea that Russia is involved in a fight for its own survival. And even, I mean, this week in the news, you know, school textbooks are now being produced, a complete rewriting of history, how Russia is now fighting for its life against West, Western powers determined to destroy mm. Russia. So they're, they're setting this up for a generational conflict. The question for Putin was, is how much longer will he last? Because, and this is what the Ukrainians are banking on in a way, they don't want the Russians to withdraw in good order. They want them somehow to crash and for the Ukrainians to actually score a strategic advantage, like being able to threaten Crimea, and then Putin will be in big, big trouble. If it looks as if his invasion is actually making everything worse rather than better, then he's in big trouble. He's already in quite a lot of trouble, but he, he'll be in big trouble. And the Ukrainians, they know that they're up against a, a, a leader who thinks that this will go on for you know a generation or so, but they're hoping that they can, as it, as it were, shift him by the crisis this war will create for him. So, I mean, finally, two, two connected questions, I suppose. We know the Ukrainians have a limited window of opportunity because we're hurtling towards autumn. What, what do you think, and we know that they are holding, we believe anyway, a sizable force back, at least mm. maybe even half a dozen brigades <clears throat> or so. What are they yeah. waiting for? and what, what, what will be that key moment? Well, I think the key moment is, is now. 
um, in the sense that they've got to use the time that they've now got for August, September into October. I mean, your guess is as good as mine as to when the weather really turns this year because the weather hasn't been so regular the last couple of years. But the weather we could expect to turn in late October, early November. And after that, it will be doesn't mean to say you won't carry on fighting because the Ukrainians have been doing that since 2014 every winter. But it will be a lot more difficult. And so the Ukrainians have to, by then, produce something that looks not just successful militarily, but decisive in Western eyes, looks as if it has, has changed the nature of the competition on the battlefield in some way. And as time goes on, that's getting to be a bigger and bigger ask. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. Seven years ago, the independent complaints watchdog for the armed forces was given new powers and a new title, the Service Complaints Ombudsman. But they're not the first stop for servicemen and women who want to complain. Instead, they oversee the force's own complaint system and they rule on whether it's doing its job properly. Seven years on, the Ombudsman says, while there have been improvements, it's still unable to say the system is fair, efficient or effective. Now, the Labour Party is promising a much more powerful Armed Forces Commissioner if it wins the election. It will be modelled on the German Commissioner, who can carry out her own investigations and who any member of the German forces can just email directly with their complaints or concerns. More than 2,000 of them did that last year. Now, the Commissioner is Dr Eva Hergel, who recently came to London. I spoke to her and she told me that one of her most important powers is making unannounced visits. So that's uh, in her words, she said they don't mow the lawns or cover the bins in camouflage nets. Soldiers are, as we call it, citizens in uniform. So they have rights, they have basic rights, they have fundamental rights, and these rights should be guaranteed. So these are the basic principles, uh, also for my work, to look after this. So I do field visits, and I don't have to announce them. And last year I did 70 field visits, and I spent around 100 days talking to German soldiers abroad and in Germany, listening to them, which is very important to listen to them, and see how the conditions are, the material, but also the uh, accommodation and how the families do. Therefore, it is very important that I don't prepare everything for me, so I can look wherever I want to, I can talk to whom I, I want to, so... I'm fully free of um, how I investigate certain issues. So what do you bring to the German military? What does the average soldier get for having you know, your presence? So it's almost everything from A to Z. I talk to soldiers about everything, their exercises, their equipment, and also the internal leadership. So if you have problems with sexual harassment, for instance, or um, right-wing extremism or whatever in the, in the army. So I talk to them about this also. Could you perhaps give me just a couple of examples of things you might have looked at in the last few years? Infrastructure is one of my main issues I look at. So the accommodation, I think it's a question of respect to have accommodation in a good state. During my field visits I always do a tour around the barracks to see how the infrastructure is and I uh, ask the responsibles there not to show me the nice areas yeah, which are in a good shape but also the problematic uh, things so I can support them to improve things. As I call myself uh, 
an advocate for the soldiers, I cannot decide myself, but I then tell the Minister of Defence or the parliamentarians or I announce it in the public what I've found and what I think should be improved. You're probably more than aware that there's issues with the accommodation in the UK military with the contractors and the speed at which repairs are taking place. Are you able to speed up the process of getting those sort of things repaired from your experience in the German military? I myself can't speed up anything, but with my strong voice, I can address everybody I want to, to the minister, to the highest ranking officers. I also talk to the people uh, being responsible for the infrastructure. For instance, in Germany, it's to the lender. So if I go to a barrack and see what's wrong there, I immediately make it public and tell people to improve the situation. And sometimes when I come the second time to this barrack, there are responsibles saying to me, well, after your last visit, things had been improved. So does that make you popular with the, the chain of command? If I may say, I have a very good relationship to even the highest ranking officers because all of them see that my office is to support every single officer. And even the Minister of Defence sees that I am to support him in his plans to improve the situation for the armed forces and for every single soldier. So. I work for the parliament, he is the minister, but I would sort of, we both sort of work together to improve things. So I was just trying to get a, maybe an example of a sort of concrete success you've had in terms of making something better for the soldiers and airmen and sailors. In yes, the I, can, I can give you one example. It's on the equipment of our soldiers. When I went to Lithuania two days before the invasion of Ukraine, I went there to talk to the German soldiers and how they see the situation and how it is in, in Lithuania. And it was three degrees cold and snowing and the German soldiers told me that they don't have enough winter clothes with their uniform and I was astonished to see them sleeping in a tent cold outside and snowing. I made a public announcement of this. I told the highest ranking soldiers, uh, officers, I told the minister and I also said it in the media that that was what I found and then immediately everyone tried to make it possible that the German soldiers there get winter clothes. So that was one effect uh, my strong voice had, yeah. I can't do this every single day, so I have to look what is really important, what is necessary to uh, be improved very quickly, so I have to distinguish, yeah, if I do it in my, uh, if I lay down it in my annual report, or talk to the parliamentarians or to the media and so on. But since I have a wide range of possibilities to announce things, I can look what is the most useful thing to do. That was the German Parliamentary Commissioner for the Armed Forces, Dr. Eva Hogel. Now, Michael, it was fascinating talking to her because she said, for instance, she goes to the barracks and she doesn't want to smell wet paint. She wants it absolutely warts and all. And, and she says she has a very good working relationship with the German chain of command. How do you think Britain's equivalent chain of command would feel about having such a powerful watchdog here? 
I'm sure they would say that there's there's no problem and that, of course, that it wouldn't make any difference to anything. But I think there's some differences in principle. Remember, you know, Germany, with its its long tradition of conscript armies, um, she said, Dr. Hergel said, you know, in Germany, we have citizen soldiers. But in a way, in Britain, we have soldier citizens, people who are professionals. And we give great weight to our small unit cohesion. And the idea of somebody sort of moving around the command chain within that wouldn't be universally welcomed, probably. However, the fact that we do have soldier citizens and that the military have a very special job to do doesn't always play well in the British media. And there have been some pretty poor showings recently. I mean, some for fair reasons, some for not very fair reasons, for all of the welfare side of what's going on in all three armed services. And I think for the sake of public credibility, I think this is not such a bad idea. And I think the chiefs, even if they naturally felt it didn't really fit with the British tradition, might also think about the need to maintain public credibility in the way in which our rather specialised military philosophy does work and that we do respect the rights of personnel. And of course, they all say, of course we do. Our people are our most important asset. But that doesn't prevent the housing stock deteriorating in the way that it does and it doesn't prevent sexual harassment in the way that it has and it doesn't prevent some rather foolish decisions on diversity being sort of filtered down in ways that don't help the situation. So I I think some public credibility would be good for the British Armed Forces at the moment and it wouldn't necessarily undermine that which makes it rather special and is different to uh, the case in Germany. Now, the pen, they say, is mightier than the sword, but they also say don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And a pen, of course, would be even less use at that point. But words and information can be used as a weapon of war and used early enough might even save you from the many costs of kinetic operations. Well, that's the argument put forward in a new book called Subversion, the Strategic Weaponization of Narratives. And the author is Dr. Andreas Krieg, who's a senior lecturer at King's College and the Royal College of Defence Studies. Andreas, just explain in, in simple terms what we're talking about. What is a narrative and why is adjusting it so powerful? Hi, um, thanks for having me. So a narrative is basically the storyline that we use to kind of package our information and facts that we want to transport. So when we communicate, we obviously don't communicate via facts, we communicate via stories. So we're all engaged in, in using narratives on a daily basis. And it can mobilize and demobilize depending on how you frame a particular issue. And, you know, we've seen that with media narratives. And so they can be weaponized. And the, the better you do it, particularly a day of hyperconnectivity in the age of social media, the better you do it, the more you can actually influence, the more you can mobilize, the more you can polarize, and the more you can achieve the objectives of warfare, which is about changing your opponent's will without actually using kinetic force or violence. I mean, in the 21st century, you mentioned there, we're talking about social media. Is, is that the sort of key means of delivery of this sort of narrative adjustment? Weaponized narratives have been around forever, obviously. But the interconnectivity that has come with social media has made it much easier to actually penetrate target audiences from afar. But I would also say it's not only about social media. It's about using academia, using newspapers and general media, policymakers, PR companies, and a, a huge host of different intermediaries that can help you transport narratives. So it's not just social media, but social media can really bring you the mass and the deep penetration. You mentioned Russia a lot in the book as, as the experts at this, if you like, in terms of weaponizing these narratives. I mean, how have they done that 
We know about the elections in the US, for instance, in, in the past few years. How have they weaponized the narratives there? So, yeah, that, that's kind of the standard example that everyone is using, How what Russia has been doing during the US elections, particularly 2016 and 2020, but also during the Brexit vote here in the UK. What they have tried is they have tapped into existing grievances within local organic audiences, people who are disenfranchised, who feel that they have not been really protected by those elites, for example, people who have anti-government sentiments and are receptive to alternative narratives about how the world works. And what the Russians have done over years and years, and that's very important, they probably start around 2014 in the United States. And we see the, the first result in 2016, where they have really polarized the political discourse prior to the election of Donald Trump, not only to get Trump elected, but also to kind of bash and undermine the integrity of uh, Hillary Clinton at the time, basically making it ever more difficult for audiences, civil society to come together and agree on, an, on, a, on a particular issue. But they've done it across Africa as well. And, and here, this is why I'm using also the United Arab Emirates as a, as a small state that has emulated the Russians. They've done it in Egypt, they've done it in Tunisia. What weaponized narratives have done is creating an information context or pretext uh, for for the military to intervene and overthrow existing governments. So in our audience will be very, very familiar with psyops and, you know, information operations. How is this different, nuanced in a way from that? It's not different at all. PSYOPs are part of subversion campaigns. PSYOPs, though, are usually used in a very tactical or maybe at best in an operational context where it's about a particular fairly small contained operation. I think what we're missing with PSYOPs, and I think this is where we need to go next, we need to understand how we do this strategically so that we can actually shift audiences strategically to ensure that our adversary never goes to war, never goes to that, uh, comes close to that military threshold and doing that preventively. And the important bit of this is it has to be done constantly. So, of, of course, the British military has been engaged in this sort of information operations for, for many years. We have 77 Brigade. How could that capability be expanded? I think that's, that, that's an important point. The capability is, exists in its infancy, but it obviously needs to be expanded if we were to compete with countries like Russia, Iran, China. And I think we need to move away from that idea that these are people in uniform who are sitting behind their computers and operating on behalf of the state. I think what it comes to is developing networks, information networks, as I'm talking about in my in my book. And networks are kind of the antithesis to a military hierarchy. And, and that's why I think that sort of capability shouldn't necessarily rest with the army or with the uniformed unit, but should be a network that is tied into an institution quite centrally in the UK that sits strategically above the military, sits strategically above the MOD and other institutions and draws on all the networks that the UK has to offer. Because it is about not only building networks, but also using and tapping into the networks, influence networks that the UK already has, of which many, if not most, are actually not under the control of the military or the government. Obviously, we've we've been in, involved in operations. Seven Seven Brigade has been involved in operations quite successfully uh, since 2014, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, uh, when we saw the invasion of the Donbas and also Crimea. I think what 7-7 Brigade has done already uh, in the Baltic states is kind of really building consensus around issues whenever Russia wanted to try to exploit a particular issue in the Baltic states. It was quite successful, the 7-7 Brigade, in supporting uh, local audiences, in, in creating more resilience against those narratives, weaponized narratives coming from Russia, and by, by creating a robust 
a core of uh, within these audiences to to fight back and and obviously that has taken years and years to do but again it's quite bespoke it's fairly tactical or if maybe operational but it's not really put together into an integrated into much broader uh, network which is what it requires dr creek thank you very much thank you well there's much more from my conversation with dr andreas creek in an extra edition of the sitrep podcast which is online now uh, in it we talk about the importance of this narrative for maintaining Western support to Ukraine, for instance, and the uh, joint US-UK operation Ajax in the 1950s, which brought about a coup in Iran. Mike, let me bring you back. It just struck me talking to Andreas. Um, America, the US tried this very bluntly after the Gulf War back in 1991, the first Gulf War, very publicly appealing to Iraqis to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Obviously, this is the, that was the pre-social media age, in a sense. They tried to achieve regime change without force. It didn't succeed. Oh, it has been used in that way in the past. I mean, tried to be. And I mean, it's interesting that the, the, that case you mentioned, 1991, you see, that's the end of the Cold War. And there were a couple of things happening then because it was the end of the Cold War. I mean, you know, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, then the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, just as the West was getting involved in the, the first Gulf War, as it was called. And there was this sense that, you know, it's called the end of history idea, the idea that liberal democracy had obviously triumphed and there was no choice but liberal democracy. And so it, history would then be determined by the speed with which the rest of the world and the style with which the rest of the world would adjust to liberal democracy. And there was also a sense that, well, we've got to be a bit more muscular about this. We've got to be muscular humanitarianism. If it's obviously wrong that Saddam Hussein should oppress his people, we should do something about it. Why, why not? And the point is, I mean, that's not been borne out by the last 30 years. And as uh, a lot of people said, the Western world has enjoyed a 30-year holiday from history since uh, 1991, which came to an end a couple of years ago, in effect. And we didn't use that holiday from history very well. And now we're just stuck with history. That's where we are again. Professor Michael Clark, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time and, and my thanks to all our guests. Uh, that's all for now. Mike will be back along with James Hurst for another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can find us now on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Simon Newton, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.